This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We love requests. And we got a request over the weekend. And that request was to look into carbon pricing and how you have people who say, yeah, 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 I'm... uh, I'm carbon neutral, and they say it in kind of an arrogant way. And so we had to look into this, and you can call it either being carbon neutral or using carbon credits or the more official name, if you want to sound hoity and toity, is carbon offsets. And just as luck would have it, we have a very well-informed global news reporter who has been doing a lot of research on this, follows a lot of what's going on environmentally closely, but follows a lot of things closely. She's an investigative reporter with globalnews.ca, and her name is Jane Gersten, and she joins us now. Jane, how is today going for you? Things are pretty good. How are you? Not too bad. Trying to figure out carbon offsets, and I know this is something that you've been able to do a lot of great work on in the past. If we are to describe so that we know what a carbon offset is, how do we begin? We would start by clarifying that carbon offsetting is not actually a way to lower your emissions. It is, if you're really going to like boil it down, it's a way to feel better about those moments when you can't avoid emitting carbon. So when you have to take a flight or when you have to drive your car, carbon offsetting is a way to say, I recognize that this activity is going to dump, you know, bad stuff into the air. And so I'm going to calculate how much that's going to put into the air and then make up for it with a donation to an organization that either helps you know, communities transit, transition to low carbon um, you know, technology or helps build trees. Okay, so in other words, you better be ready to have a, a bank account to properly take care of carbon offsets, it sounds like. They're not actually too expensive. Oh, no? Um, yeah, so some, like, organizations like Less Emissions will, like, calculate. They actually have, like, an online calculator that will go through and say, like, here's the distance of your flight, here's how many emissions, and here are some of our projects that you can go to. Less Emissions will do, like, a calculation for you. So you can go and you can plug in, you know, I'm flying Toronto to Vancouver, um, and that flight will pump out more than half a ton of carbon dioxide just for your seat. And so they'll calculate sort of like how much your cost of that emissions is. And actually that flight is just $20.71. So in other words, if you were to take that flight because you had no other way to get to where it was you were going that was going to get you there on time, you would turn around and make that $20 donation to another organization and that would be your offset? Yep. Okay. Exactly it. That doesn't sound as bad as I thought, because when you started saying, well, you know, if you're, if you're taking a flight and all of a sudden you're going to have to be paying for things, I thought, I don't have an extra $1,000 to donate for whatever that costs. But, okay, 20 bucks. 20 bucks doesn't sound too bad. So when you started looking into this, you, you started talking to some people who advocated for it. What, what did they tell you? So people love it as, you know, kind of an awareness technique. So it helps people sort of be aware of, like, what their activities are doing. It helps them understand that, you know, you taking a flight or you driving your car is not doing nothing to the environment. It's having an impact. 
So from that perspective, people really like it. The one sort of, you know, problem, and I had, you know, I had this professor who really explained it really well. She said offsets are designed to get us back to a baseline. So their worry is that some people will see it as sort of like, you know, a free pass. They'll say like, hey, it doesn't matter that I took 10 flights. I paid 20 bucks for each flight to build, you know, to, to plant new trees. Um, so that's kind of their concern is that, you know, people will use it as a, you know, as a way to feel better when realistically they want people to be transitioning towards lower carbon lifestyles. We are talking with Jane Gerster, who is a national features reporter with globalnews.ca, and we're looking at carbon offsets. This was something that we had a request last week. Can you find someone who can explain carbon offsets? Boy, can we. Jane is doing exactly that. So, sure, not not trying to say, okay, if, if you take all these flights, it's still all right, trying to find a way to dissuade people. Do you feel that it's working, or did you talk to people who are, are looking at it as, yeah, th- this is a positive, this is working, or are they still kind of in the feeling out phase and thinking maybe we need to do it differently? Everyone's a little bit mixed. You know, people don't, you know, lots of people who are sort of in the thick of it don't want you know, the general public to get too fixated on, like, one thing, like a carbon tax or carbon offset as, like, the solution. Um, But, I mean, my research on this started because, you know, I went to a bunch of weddings and everyone had kind of, you know, as a gift, you can donate to my carbon offsets. Um, So, generally speaking, the experts are pro-people purchasing carbon offsets, but they want people to do their research because not all carbon offsets are created equal. And what you want to do is make sure that your carbon offset is actually going, um, you know, to a project that is helping people transition to a lower carbon lifestyle because ultimately the goal is not just to get us back to a baseline. The goal is to lower our emissions. And where do we find the information on that? Where did you dig? So where I started is actually with um, a website called The Gold Standard, which is the carbon offset standards body. So their job is to evaluate each carbon offset so that you make sure that the one you're picking is actually really getting the most out of your 20 bucks. Okay, excellent. Well, we can head there and see how things look, and 20 bucks for a flight gives you maybe a, a little bit of a, hey, yeah, I had to pay that extra little bit. It, it's kind of like leaving Vancouver. You had to pay that extra little bit just to get out, but at the same time, it, uh, it at least leaves an impact on you, an impression on you. Jane, we really want to thank you for helping us to understand what this is and, and how it works. Keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Jane Gersten. On carbon offsets, Jane is an investigative reporter with Global News Online, so you can find her at globalnews.ca. Is that something you'd ever do? I mean, this is not something that you're being forced to do. And here we go, that same conversation that we wind up having when it comes to environmental footprints, when it comes to things like climate change, when it comes to human impact. You've got people saying, yeah, we're not having as big an impact as we think. You've got others saying, yeah, we've, we've got to do things like this. It's kind of a little slap on the wrist. So as Jane outlined it, when you're taking that flight and the flight is costing you money, then you have to look and say, all right, well, yeah, I, I shouldn't have had to do this. Uh, and, and for instance, this is not a flight from London to Toronto. This would be, let's call it through the less emissions site. You would have flown 3,348 kilometers and it would cost you $20 and 71 cents as Jane outlined. So 
that's a flight from Toronto to Vancouver. That's an example. But are you actually going to get off the plane and go, shouldn't have had to do that. I left so much of a carbon footprint. I'm going to go to less emissions, and I'm going to calculate how much I need to pay, and then I'm going to make a donation just to remind myself to try not to do things like this in the future. That's really what using carbon offsets is all about. So if you've got somebody like the prime minister, you've got someone else who's saying they're carbon neutral, that's what they're referring to, that they make those little payments to try to keep themselves carbon neutral. Good thing, bad thing, thing that you would ever entertain doing yourself, you can email mike at 980cfpl.ca if you want to weigh in. But thanks for, Alan, for requesting that we find out more about carbon offsets. That's how it works. That's what it's asking you to do. It's not a requirement. I mean, would it be better to require people to do things like this instead of bring in a carbon tax? I start to wonder. You know, if all of a sudden there were ways to calculate it, but you'd need to hire an awful lot of people to keep track of roughly 36 million people in this country who are moving around an awful lot or who are driving around or flying around or, you know, doing things that are actually making use of carbon. That's that's not going to happen. So I think that's why we're left to say, yeah, it's up to you. You want to do it? Do it. You don't want to do it? Nobody's going to force your hand. Part of being human is forgetting how to do things. Do you not find you can learn a language at the age of eight? You stop speaking that language. Somebody starts speaking that language to you when you're 26. No clue. You have no idea what's going on. You might pick out the odd word. We're humans. We forget. Things get stored way up in that gray matter of ours. We don't know where they are. you got to restart the old synapses, I think. That doesn't sound right, does it? Don't worry. I'm not a doctor. But we are going to get to practice some very important things right now. Refresh our memories as we do each and every time this man comes by. Deputy Fire Chief Jack Bird joins us in studio. Deputy Chief Bird, how are things? Good. Thanks Good. for having me on today, Mike. Well, I, we need this. Absolutely. You know what? I got home on Friday night, and it wasn't like a smoke alarm was going off in the house, but our thermostat battery had died. How did I let that happen? And yeah. all of a sudden, we had the electronic thermostat. I don't think your furnace will kick on without it. I thought, we're depending a lot on a little AAA battery here, but it, it had done that. And then I thought, well, I probably haven't changed the batteries in the smoke alarms. Not that I went and did that, but I thought in my head I should probably do that. But how many times do you deal with people who say, yeah, I meant to do that. I, I'm going to. Don't worry. Don't worry, Deputy Chief Bird. I'm going to do this. But then we don't. You know, we hear this all the time. We were literally just in a home here this afternoon uh, where we walked in and it was an elderly gentleman that lived in that home and he had no working smoke alarms in his home. Um, the smoke alarm was from 1993. It was a big square pumpkin spice colored thing, <laughs> which is seasonal right now. It's very nice. Spice. Yeah. Um, but it wouldn't have worked in a fire. So we made sure that they had working smoke alarms and working carbon monoxide alarms where they needed to be on every level of the home and outside all sleeping areas before we left that home. But we hear this far too often. Uh, you know, we remind people that when you change your clocks, change your batteries, uh, we tell you to test your smoke alarms every month. But how many people actually do that? Uh, not very many. And then unfortunately, when fire strikes, fire happens so fast that you really don't have the time to 
to think about, did I test that smoke alarm last night? You mentioned 1993, which we like to believe wasn't all that long ago. It's it's getting further and further behind us. <laughs> but the fact that 1993 was a while ago, if you have a smoke alarm and you think, yeah, 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 I remember buying that, went out with the kids, talked to them all about buying smoke alarms, the importance of having smoke alarms, I put that up in 1993. When does that all of a sudden not become dependable, not because of the battery in it, just because it is from 1993. Yeah, most people don't realize that smoke alarms actually expire. They're like milk. They have a little bit of longer shelf life. Oh, good, good. They last, they last 10 years. They don't typically. curdle when they... No, no. That or might be a change good sign, them. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they last 10 years. Um, the reason for that is most smoke alarms have a piece of radioactive material inside them, and that piece of radioactive material decays by half every 10 years. Hmm. So your smoke alarm literally loses half its effectiveness. And people still push the button. They think it works. But all that's doing is testing the power supply to show that there's power to it. The sensor's still decaying. So after 10 years, you know, your, your button may work when you press it, but that power is literally going away in that uh, sensor. So should we be testing it differently then? I'm not, uh, not suggesting we should be starting fires in the home just to see if, hey, I wonder if this will work. Uh, how should we be looking at it then or just make sure that we write down this will expire, please replace? Smoke alarms now that, um, that are newer than 10 years um, or just over 10 years old – actually have the date on the side of the smoke alarm now where you can actually see replaced by a certain date or manufactured on this date. So make sure you know what that date is. If there's no date on your smoke alarm on the outside of it, it's over 10 years old and it's time to replace it. Huh. Okay. We're talking with Deputy Fire Chief Jack Burt with us uh, in studio. It is Fire Prevention Week. If you have any kind of question that we're not asking right now that you'd like to have an answer to, here's your opportunity to talk with the Deputy Chief. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. And I say that because we just got a couple of emails. Uh, first of all, Mike says that's as old as me. So 1993, as old as Mike. Uh, it's a good year. 1993 was a good year. Last time a Canadian team won the Stanley Cup. I mean, it was a good year. Don't tell fans that it was the Canadians. Uh, we got another email from Steve. Steve says, we built our house eight years ago and our smoke alarms are hardwired. Do those also need to be replaced or are they a different setup entirely? Most people think that if you have a hardwired smoke alarm in your home, you don't have to replace it, but the, it, in all actuality, you do. It still has that same sensor inside. It just has a different power supply coming into it. Therefore, they need to be replaced just like your other smoke alarms. So whether it's a battery-powered smoke alarm whether it's um, a hardwired smoke alarm, all smoke alarms need to be replaced every 10 years to make sure they're effective. Okay. You also mentioned carbon monoxide detectors, and they seem to be going quite hand-in-hand with smoke alarms. Not too long ago, we didn't all have carbon monoxide detectors in our home. Now, I, I don't know that I should be asking you this question, but I'm going to. Do we have to by law? Yeah, by law, you are required to have a carbon monoxide alarm outside all sleeping areas. Do you remember when you first uh, bought your carbon monoxide alarm, you'd put it beside your furnace? Mm-hmm. Well, most people would do that, but if they lived on or if they slept on the second story of their home, they couldn't hear that alarm when it was going off. What we want is people to actually wake up in the middle of the night when they have carbon monoxide in their home. Hence, that's why it's required by law to be outside all sleeping areas. We highly recommend that you put them on every level of your home. But the law does require just outside sleeping areas. And we don't seem to realize how easy it is for carbon monoxide to become an issue in the home. You think about how tight our subdivisions are right now. If you live in a subdivision, you get a snow drift. All of a sudden, it's it's not being evacuated out of the home very well, is it? Yeah, that's true. And we see that more and more as winter comes on. But right now, everybody's starting to fire their furnaces up. 
you know, the dreaded word frost is starting to come into the forecasts. It's getting colder outside. So at night you're seeing those heating appliances come on. If you don't have um, over the course of the, the summer, maybe a bird's got in there, maybe your flu's blocked. Make sure that you're inspecting that before you turn your furnace on to make sure the carbon monoxide's not building up in your home. Because wow. you can't see it. You can't taste it. You certainly can't hear it unless you have a working carbon monoxide alarm in your home. Now, same thing as a smoke detector. Do they have a shelf life too? Yeah, the older models were typically five to seven years. And most of those models are um, due for replacement now. Uh, the newer technology with them where you're seeing the combination smoke CO alarms, uh, they're lasting up to about 10 years. Okay. We're going to talk about some of the things that are causing fires these days and get ready to say, yeah, yeah, I do that or, oh, I haven't done that forever. Well, that might be a good thing. But we'll go through a bit of a checklist when we return. And before we even go away, Deputy Chief Bird, you need to hit us with this. If a smoke alarm is going off in your house, if there is a fire in your home, how long do you have to get out? It's a great question and most people think that you have lots of time to get out. Uh, 20 years ago, you probably had, you know, upwards of 15, 20 minutes to get out. Really? But with the synthetic furnishings that we have in our homes now and our couches and our drapery and our carpets, you could reach a flashover state in your home in three minutes. I watched a video last week where a whole room was consumed in one minute from a simple fire that happened on a floor. You have very little time to get out and you think that smoke alarm, wherever it's placed, it could be 30, 40 seconds before it actually detects the smoke that's building in that room. You have less than a minute to get out of your home when that smoke alarm goes off. Less than a minute. I was thinking we're still at the three-minute mark here. You're saying less than a minute. Less than a minute. You want to be out of that house. You want to make sure everybody else is out, and you want a meeting place outside so you know that everybody's out and you're not going back in. How do you start a conversation like that without scaring kids? If you've got kids who are six, seven, eight years old and you have to say, okay, we gotta, we got to talk about this, and you still want them to be able to sleep at night, any suggestions for getting that done? It's important to have some fun with the home escape planning. That way everybody's involved in it. Uh, plan and practice your home escape. We say this all the time, but when was the last time that somebody actually planned and practiced their home escape plan? You don't see it very often. And when you think about it, when you've got a minute to get out of your house and your house is filling up with smoke and you might have one exit that's blocked, do you really think you have the time to start planning a new exit? So make sure that you plan and practice that escape with the kids, with guests that are coming over maybe for Thanksgiving weekend. Make sure that everybody knows two ways out of that house and has that meeting place outside. What is a good idea for a meeting place? Anything in particular that you point to? Typically try to go across the street, get uh, away from the house, make sure that you're far enough away that uh, you are safe and that everybody knows where that place is because you don't want somebody going back in to try to find somebody that's already out and never go back in when your house is on fire. Make sure you make that call to 911 and get us there as quick as we can so that we can do our job. Well said. So a tree as opposed to, hey, we'll meet by the red van that's always parked in that driveway. Except when it's not. Exactly. So trees don't usually go far. Trees, mailboxes, a house next door, a neighbor, something along those lines so you're far enough away that uh, everybody can get to it uh, and still be safe. We are going through some excellent tips. It is Fire Prevention Week. And again, we'll go through a checklist of how fires are starting. And it's a lot It's a lot more simple than you might think. And it's so easy to kind of get into the habit of doing something that might be dangerous that you don't even realize because, hey, did that on Thursday, no problem. Did that two Tuesdays ago, hmm, no problem. Maybe there is a problem. So we'll go through that next. Chief Bird, you get to go into a lot of homes 
Have you ever been in a home where there wasn't, not just not a working smoke alarm, not a smoke alarm, doesn't exist? Yeah, we, and you know what? We see this far too often. I, I think people think it won't happen to me until it actually does. And when you don't have that detection, those consequences could be fatal. Huh. Well, we're going to talk about what is causing fires, but I do want to go because Candace has sent an email to Mike at 980cfpl.ca. And Candace said, we had to look into a different kind of smoke alarm because after one malfunctioned and went off in our home, we realized our son, who was sleeping inside the room next to the fire alarm, did not wake up. So we looked into one that actually incorporated a parent's voice. Is this something that you would recommend if you have kids? Kids. It's always important to have that audible alarm. Um, if you do have kids, though, you can put one of those types of smoke alarms inside their room that has the parent's voice that says wake up or get up, something along those um, lines, just to make sure that the kid does get up. Uh, but it also you can incorporate strobe lights into those so the light starts flashing okay. uh, just as another um, sensory perception just to uh, actually get you to come up. Wow. Yeah, because the waking up part has, like you say, it could take 40 seconds for the smoke alarm to go off. It could take another 20 seconds for you to wake up. How many times does your alarm become part of your dream? And you're thinking, what is that noise? And it's some weird thing in your dream. And then you realize, wait a minute, that's my alarm. And, And then you have to get up. Okay. So that's a great tip. Strobe lights now exist for smoke alarms. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Look into those. Let's talk about what is causing fires these days. If we're to look at, say, the number one cause, what are you seeing? Cooking. Cooking. Yeah, still cooking. Um, it's been the number one cause for a number of years. Uh, we always tell people to look while they cook, stand by their pan, watch what you eat, <laughs> be still by the grill. We keep throwing <laughs> these rhymes out so people will actually remember it. Um, like, see snow, go slow. Yes. Right? People now remember that one, but we're still trying to pump out these lines to uh, make people stay in the kitchen when they're cooking. Um, sometimes that dreaded doorbell goes off, you got company coming over, grab a spatula out of the kitchen, take it with you in your hand to the door to remind you that you still have something on the stove and then get back to the kitchen to make sure that you know that uh, your cooking is still safe. So is that the big deal? Like people will be cooking, leave, get distracted because as if we didn't have enough things to distract us, you can always find one more. That's the issue? People are leaving the kitchen, not realizing they have something on the stove? Yeah, and it happens more than you think. Uh, Last week, we had seven serious fires, and five of them were a direct result of cooking. Unattended cooking, people just walking out of the kitchen or leaving their home altogether with something on the stove. Yeah. Uh, But typically, it's just somebody walking into another room, the TV's on, they start texting, uh, just something to distract them enough to make them forget that they're cooking. And then what else? If it's not cooking, what else is high on the list? Smoking. Believe it or not, people smoking inside um, is still our number one cause of fatal fires here in London. Um, five of our last seven fatalities here in London have been caused by careless smoking. Right? You drop a cigarette in your chair, you fall asleep, you might have had too much to drink. We tell everybody, smoke outside. Don't smoke inside. Or if you're smoking inside, make sure that you have a deep enough ashtray that you're putting it out and you're putting it right out every time. Otherwise, those consequences could be fatal. Yeah. Wow. And what is that for fatal fires again? Go through that stat? Uh, it's five for seven. Five, five of the last, last seven. seven. Oh. And how about candles? Is that still an issue? Yeah. You know what? I always tell people when you go out, blow out. Uh, it's another <laughs> rhyme that we just we just keep throwing these rhymes out here. Uh, but they're catchy and it, and it causes people to, uh, to think about that. When you leave a room, blow out that candle. In my career, I've seen uh, dogs knock candles over or cats knock candles over when you're out of a room. And next thing you know, you have a room that's on fire. And like I said earlier, those room fires, they can start and 
that whole room could be on fire in a minute. Um, to put that in perspective, that's like brushing your teeth before you go to bed. In that time frame, you could have a whole room consumed by fire. Wow. Well, it's certainly something to go over, certainly something to practice, certainly something to talk to your family about or whoever you're living with. Make sure that you've got that escape plan. Two exits, right? Two ways out. Two ways out just in case one of them is blocked and you don't have any time to go looking around. This is not 1965 where the fire remains contained to a room and you can go around the rest of the house. If you know there's a fire, out you go. Yeah, and make sure that you you call nine one one as soon as you can. Uh, we'll get there as quick as I can, as quick as we can. And we'll do our jobs. Deputy Chief Burt, thank you for doing your job today. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me on there. It was a pleasure. We have something very important to do. We want to preview the federal leaders' debate tonight because I hope this provides, as Marilyn called for, no mudslinging. And at least some semblance of how everybody feels on certain major issues. Everybody can give their thoughts and let we, the voting public, determine what it is that we would do on Election Day. That's what we're looking for. Because elections have, like we said off the start of the show, two types of people. There are the people who are undecided and show me what you got. And there are the card-carrying members of a party who it doesn't matter what they say or do. That's who... They will be voting for it. And that's the way it's worked for a long, long time. And there's nothing wrong with either one. But for anybody who's a little undecided, let's see what happens. Let's see right now where we should put our attention, what we should be looking for. Professor Matt Farrell is a professor of political science at Fanshawe College and joins us now. Professor Farrell, how are things? Things are good. How you doing, Mike? Not bad. So we've got... We've got all of the leaders, including Maxime Bernier, invited tonight to take part in this. Is is he someone you're interested to see, or is he somebody who you expect? I, I, I can't expect him to be quiet tonight. Well, I think it will be. That's the one thing I would say is a certainty. It's going to be noisy up there. It'll be a little chaotic, just frankly because of the sheer number of leaders we've got up there. This is, uh, I, I think, the the most we've had in a long time with six leaders sharing the stage. We've got questions going to be peppered from all over the place that have been submitted by Canadians. It is going to be pretty chaotic, and I'm not sure exactly how much speaking time each of the party leaders is actually going to end up with. It may only be a handful of minutes. I think when you do the math, it's possible they could get about 15 to 20 minutes of speaking time, but just just given some of the back and forth that, that might happen and, and the actual questions themselves coming from the moderators, we're looking at maybe, let's say, realistically, five minutes. You've got five minutes to ten minutes to make an impression as a leader. So the who to watch, I, I think debates like this, they're a real, real chance for some of the, if you want to call them the undercard leaders, maybe the leaders that don't have a real serious shot at forming the government, it's a good opportunity for them to to get their message out to voters because it's a big ask trying to get a vote for for your local candidates when you don't have a really good shot at forming the government. So this is a chance for you to make your pitch. I think all eyes are really going to be on the dynamic between Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer. I think that's what everybody wants to see. Who's going to come out? Who's going to make a big impression? Is, is anybody going to land a knockout blow? Because both of those leaders really need to do something to distance themselves from the other. The election is very close. It's been a nasty campaign. And, um, you know, by many counts, the Conservatives should be winning. So this is a, 
this is a chance perhaps for Andrew Shear to make the biggest impression. There seems to be some nitpicky stuff that's been going on, whether it's citizenship or two planes or passports or did you enroll in a draft and that kind of thing. Do you think we get away from that stuff tonight or are you concerned that that stuff may trickle into this debate too? I suspect it will trickle in. It's um, maybe the one benefit of having these debates. Uh, they, they are, frankly, they're one of the more watched television events in Canada, which is it, is good. It gets in Canadians uh, acquainted with the leaders before the election, but it gets the leaders out of their scripted and controlled environments, and so that's a good thing. They're they're, they're on their toes. They don't know where the questions are going to come from. Are they going to get an attack from one leader? They need to be prepared for anything. So it will be. Um, a little less scripted. There'll be some more off-the-cuff exchanges and, and open dialogue. So will that produce, um, you know, maybe a departure from some of the, the scripted campaign attacks? As you, as you noted, they aren't really substantive. There's not a lot of talk about policy, a lot of character stuff, a lot of wedge issue stuff. So maybe this is a chance for the leaders to actually talk about policy. These debates tend to be structured on themes, and so each of those themes will have a policy focus. And so ideally, um, they will be speaking to that, and we'll get an idea of, of um, substantively um, you know, what, what's going on and, and really what's fundamental to these leaders' visions rather than the, the typical reflexive partisan attacks. We're talking with Professor Matt Farrell from Fanshawe College. As we look ahead to tonight's federal leaders' debate, you can hear it on 980 CFPL. As far as, I guess, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer of the Conservatives go, are you, are you seeing anything that we should be watching for in terms of policy that, that may be key? And, and I'm not sure whether it matters whether you win a debate, but at least to, to really make an impact for people who are on the fence between the two? Well, that's a, a great point, because I think both leaders um, at different times during the, the campaign, as they've rolled out different um, different elements of their, their platform and different policies, there's a lot of overlap in some areas. It's almost, I know the, um, they, they've been accused of copying each other's platforms and so on, but that, that's strategic. They're competing over the same voters. And so I, I really think with them, the uh, you know just given frankly their, their high disapproval ratings and and some of the negative opinions of them, each one is going to try not to alienate any voters. I, I think that's going to be um, one of their their missions tonight. Justin Trudeau, you might see him try and not say a heck of a lot. He's going to be under attack a lot. He's the incumbent prime minister, so his best shot is to try and maybe avoid that the the direct blows try and pivot away from some of those those nasty exchanges and really not say heck of a lot. I think when when we talk about the the undecided voters, you know, maybe there's about 18% of the voters, 20%, maybe even as high as 25 or 30 that haven't made up their mind yet. I think the real question for both of these leaders is how do you convince people to come out at all, given that, that this is a really nasty campaign? Can you do something that will convince people, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll come out and vote for you, when there's a general... Uh, distaste for most of the candidates, given when you look at some of their approval ratings. Yeah, and that's that's one of those one of those things. I mean, votership. Do you do you want to see a voting public that is informed, or do you want to see a voting public that's going to participate, even if they might be uninformed? What's better for us? It's it's really tough to say. I mean, that's uh, an age old question in political science. But we live in uh, an era of extreme effective polarization, where we know the electorate can be sort of sorted into two approximately 
sides, you know, a, a roughly a right and a left side. They really don't like each other. They're pretty entrenched. You're not going to change their mind. And so we know those folks are hyper-engaged in politics. We, we, we know that they're dialed in. The liberals can count on their support. The conservatives, and, and even the NDP, have, have a pretty, um, they've got a significant floor of voters that they can rely on. Nothing is going to change the mind of those voters. And so, you know, more information or not, it's 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 almost part of your identity at that point. So the real swing voters, you talk about, you know, the knowledge to sort of, you know, take that information, turn that into a vote choice. There is a solid number out there. Maybe it's around 20%, maybe it's less of people that will genuinely be informed. I don't know what the right balance is there. I don't even know how you, you really discern that information. But I think at the end of the day, we want more people voting. We, we do want to see that. That's kind of a metric for a healthy democracy. When, when you've got a lot of people participating in the process, that is a good thing. I think it's fair to say, um, you know, it's you, you can get into the weeds a bit when you talk about how informed those votes actually are. But hey, if people are going to leave their house and vote as a, somebody that's teaches political science, I'll take it. I'm, I'm all for civic engagement. Good, good. As a final thing, and we're talking with Professor Matt Farrell, Professor of Political Science at Fanshawe College, the positioning of the leaders on stage, does that matter much where they stand? It can. It can. Some of the most notable exchanges in Canadian debates, think of the, the, the John Turner and, and Brian Mulroney, they're right next to each other. And so th- that definitely helps. I don't know if, you know, what it's going to look like with six of them on stage. We're going to see a lot of pointing and, and waving, I suspect. In in the past, that they've been sitting around a table seated. There's really, there's, there's no good way to make this happen when you've got so many leaders. But I, I do, uh, I would suspect the physical positioning, whether you're, you're next to somebody you want to attack, that could be advantageous to you. If you're Justin Trudeau, I mean, that's something you're really going to be mindful of. Where are these attacks coming from? So, yeah, the, the the way that the candidates use the physical space and how they're arranged, it can have an impact, especially when you think of their body language and the way voters are perceiving them. Are they sweating? Are they looking nervous? Are they writing a lot? All of that stuff is is um, is really going to be front of mind and on display. Well, we'll see what does play out tonight. Professor Farrell, thanks so much for helping us to preview it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. That's Professor Matt Farrell from Fanshawe College. So, yeah, that kind of stuff matters. Six of them on stage. It'll be up to the moderator to kind of control things, and that will be the toughest end of this, especially if one of them wants to be very outspoken. And you could see perhaps Maxime Bernier trying to be that person, trying to, if nothing else, disrupt what's going on, throw someone off their game, make somebody look bad. And that... That'll make for fun listening, fun watching. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.